Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. My guest today is Priscilla Gilman, author, critic, and former professor of English literature at Vassar College and Yale University, where I was lucky enough to be taught by her. Symbiotica is one of the fastest growing health and wellness companies in the country, which seems well-deserved as they use only clean, premium ingredients in their formulas, which means no seed oils, no fillers, no additives, and no artificial ingredients. I really like Symbiotica because many of their formulations are liquid or liposomal, which means that you can literally squirt a pouch of their vitamin C into your mouth and head out the door. It's legitimately delicious. Or if it's their vanilla cream flavored magnesium, you can squirt a pouch into your mouth, brush your teeth, and go to bed. No sleepy girl mocktail required. They have a delicious berry flavored bioavailable B12 that you simply pump into your mouth, along with a citrus berry flavored glutathione, an adaptogenic brain health blend that's vanilla chai flavored, and pretty much everything else that you're likely looking for in the vitamin aisle to add to your routine. Though you don't actually need to find a vitamin aisle because Symbiotica ships straight to your door via subscription, which amplifies the convenience factor. Essential for me when it comes to establishing routines that I can set and forget. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code THREAD for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use code THREAD for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. And the moment when she admitted that she had been wrong, that was the greatest healing moment for me of all. And that would never have happened had I not written the memoir, had I not been sort of seeking her out, asking her lots of questions, details of fights that they had, why they fell in love, how they fell in love, what her doubts were. And then there was that moment where she sent me that brief email where she affirmed his essential goodness, his essential integrity, and his worth as a father, which was so important to me and essentially saying she married him in large part because she so desperately wanted to have children. And at that, you know, in that in that era, she was she was 27, I think, or 28 when she married him, which for a girl who came from the Midwest was very late, especially. And, you know, she had gone through and then went through all this trauma. She had three miscarriages. She had something wrong with her uterus. She had to have surgery. So I was the fourth pregnancy that my parents had. And that's why they went ahead and had another baby so quickly with my sister 14 months later. And I think she just saw immediately that not only would my father be an incredible parent, but also he would be the kind of parent that a working woman, the dream parent for a working woman, 
because he wanted to do all that stuff that not only did she not have time to do, but she really didn't have any inclination to do. Like playing with us, the imaginative play, taking us out on the weekends. I mean, my father, I don't think I ever in my entire life had a moment where I looked at my father and thought, he's tired of us or he's exhausted, he's bored with us, he wants to get back to his adult things. Every instant that he was with us, I felt him completely engaged and, to use your word from earlier, completely enthusiastic. So says Priscilla Gilman, author, critic, and former professor of English literature at Vassar College and Yale University. In her first book, The Anti-Romantic Child, A Memoir of Unexpected Joy, Priscilla writes the challenges and delights of raising her son Benjamin, who is autistic. Her newest work, The Critic's Daughter, is another family story, this time a searching reflection on her relationship with her esteemed, brilliant, and complicated father, the late theater critic and professor at Yale Drama School, Richard Gilman. Though the world knew him as an exacting and confrontational critic, Priscilla and her sister knew their father as the adoring, playful parent who regularly entered their childish worlds, delighting in their company in imaginative pastimes. Their father-daughter connection was forever changed, however, by her parents' separation. At the age of 10, she witnessed her father fall into shame and depression, which forced her to reckon with the lasting wounds marital disillusion can leave on a person and a family. The book, filled with honest and painful stories of learning to see her father for who he truly was, expertly captures the universal experience of coming to terms with one's parents as flawed, complicated people, and then choosing to admire and respect them anyway. Our conversation explores what it was like to be raised surrounded by creatives and critics, the difficulties of being thrust into the role of parenting your own parents, and the gifts and complications that come from endeavoring to truly know those we love the most. Okay, let's get to our conversation. It's interesting to me, and granted, I am not the child of divorce, and so I've only seen this from afar. One chord that struck me is that in writing about your par- the dissolution of your parents' relationship, that your mother felt so strongly about your father after when it didn't seem like she felt that strongly about him during. Ah, mm. That's a very interesting. And I, uh, yeah, I think she, you know, it's interesting, the Kirkus review, which was wonderful, and I'm so grateful for it. And I felt like the anonymous reviewer read the book with a lot of empathy and a lot of sensitivity. But the one word that I didn't agree with was she said that she described my mother's cruelty. Mm. And I don't think my mother was cruel. I don't think she had the intention ever of demonizing my father or, you know, trying to promote herself over my father. I think she genuinely worried about my innocence and naivete about my father's life, that it would catch up with me at some point. I would find it out at some point. And I think she was genuine. she genuinely felt the need to explain why she had ended the marriage, because otherwise I would have been completely bewildered and distraught. And I think she didn't want me to be angry at her. And I also think that for many years, she had been repressing all of her feelings about my father. 
right? She was basically in survival mode. And I, I have a lot of empathy for her. You know, the, I write in the book about the moment where I find her in her room sobbing about Donald Barthelme. Mm-hmm. And when I was, I think I was on leave from Yale at that point in my sophomore year. And I just had never known until that point that she had married my father on the rebound, that she was still grieving for this loss of this romantic relationship with Donald Barthelme, and that my father had always been second to Don. And I, you know, it gave me such insight both into my mother's never having been in love with my father and into how terrible that must have made my father feel because he knew it the whole way through. You know, she said to me, you know, I was never in love with your father. And I told him that. And remember, I have that scene where I talk about how she said to him, like, that she wasn't and he wanted to marry her. And he said, oh, well, passion fades, but companionship survives. And he sort of tossed her into marrying him. Yeah. And he's not wrong. I mean, it's interesting. It's he's like, not wrong. Yeah. I agree. He's not. <laughs> it's not. And they were good companions in a lot of ways. Yeah. Your mom didn't strike me. I mean, this is, and having known you, it's so funny because you were my professor and not my peer. But it was interesting to even know you when I was 18. And you were probably, what, 28, 30? I don't know. This was a Something while ago. Like, I was hired by Yale when I was 28. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. were young. And I feel like you were pregnant, maybe. And this comes through the book, every page of the book, this combination of your incredibly complex and mature mind, and then your sweetness. And as your mom said, not naivete, it's almost just like a, an enthusiasm. And I want to talk about enthusiasm and criticism at some point Ooh, in this conversation. But you are throughout the book, like such a big little child, right? Little big kid, little big kid. That's the right <laughs> yes. phrase, you know, yes. and invested with way too much responsibility, taking on and with an understanding, I will say, of what's happening that's well beyond your years. But I don't know if that was a function of the 70s and 80s and this idea that kids could handle it or they could handle the truth. But the way that you were, I would say, empowered, even though I hate that word, was such a disservice to you, right? Like there was no there was no way that you were allowed to be a child with all of your feelings. You were parenting your parents. Absolutely. Yes. And I was parenting (laughs) my father from the minute I came into the world in a way even though we were mutually parenting each other until the split happened. But I absolutely, in a sense, was parenting my mom from the minute she starts revealing all this stuff to me. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, when you write about your mom, was it reading, um, what is it, The Gifts of the The Dramatic Child? The Drama of the Gifted Child. Drama of the Gifted Child and essentially plopping it in your lap and saying, see, your father was a narcissist and your glory reflected on him. That's how he saw you was through himself. And you took, understandably, a lot of the front of of that. Mm -hmm. And yet there is, there was like an attachment wound, right, with your father, this idea that there was no secure attachment in the sense of him being a durable reliable, steady object to which you could depend on, right? But I don't know. I agree with you. I don't, he didn't seem like a narcissist. No. 
And the moment when she admitted that she had been wrong, that was the greatest healing moment for me of all. And that would never have happened had I not written the memoir, had I not been sort of seeking her out, asking her lots of questions, details of fights that they had, why they fell in love, how they fell in love, what her doubts were. And then there was that moment where she sent me that brief email where she affirmed his essential goodness, his essential integrity, and his worth as a father. Yeah. Which was so important to me. And essentially saying she married him in large part because she so desperately wanted to have children. And at that, you know, in that, in that era, she was, she was 27, I think, or 28 when she married him, which for a girl who came from the Midwest was very late, especially. And, you know, she had gone through and then went through all this trauma. She had three miscarriages. She had something wrong with her uterus. She had to have surgery. So I was the fourth pregnancy that my parents had. And that's why they went ahead and had another baby so quickly with my sister 14 months later. And I think she just saw immediately that not only would my father be an incredible parent, but also he would be the kind of parent that a working woman, the dream parent for a working woman, because he wanted to do all that stuff that not only did she not have time to do, but she really didn't have any inclination to do. Like playing with us, the imaginative play, taking us out on the weekends. I mean, my father, I don't think I ever in my entire life had a moment where I looked at my father and thought, he's tired of us. Or he's exhausted, he's bored with us, he wants to get back to his adult things. Every instant that he was with us, I felt him completely engaged and to use your word from earlier, completely enthusiastic. No, it's so interesting too, because you can also understand why your mom, who was sort of young and trying to sort of cut her teeth in this literary world, would want to borrow his confidence in her. And then also, it's interesting too, sort of the beginning of the book and how you explain the way that he entered your world and played with you, because I've done some work, some couples work with Stan Tatkin, who specializes in attachment and attachment wounds. And one of the first questions that he asks as he's taking you through his questionnaire is, when you were a child, who played with you? Did your parents play with you? And did they enter your world? Or did they expect you to enter theirs? Isn't that interesting? Ooh, I love that. I love that. Elise, you know what's funny is all the important adults in my life, except for my mother, entered my world. Grammy Peg and Grampy Merle, I talk about them a lot. My grandmother was wild for imaginative play. My nanny, Carrie, we didn't call her a nanny then, but she was basically my third parent. You know, watched all the children's shows with us. My brother from my father's first marriage, who was 12 years older, so he was in college when we were little. My mother was the only one who did not want to watch any of the kids shows with us, who didn't really like to read to us, although she started to read to us later when she could read more adult books. David Copperfield was the first book that she read to us. <laughs> and Jane Eyre, I remember that at some point. But my mother, I just always had the feeling that my mother had no interest. She loved me and my sister very, very much and was proud of us, but she just had no interest in childhood per se or children's pastimes per se. Yeah. And 
you know, I think part of that was that she had grown up with this mother who was obsessed with that stuff. And she was defining herself as opposed to her mother, my grandmother, Peg, Jeremy Peg, also named Priscilla, actually. Peg was short for Priscilla. I'm the third Priscilla in my family. And my mother was just like, I got to get out of the Midwest as quickly mm -hmm. as I possibly can and get out of this world of like being a stay-at-home mother and a Sunday school teacher and a Republican, which my grandmother, my grandparents both were. And oh my gosh, Richard Gilman, divorced, liberal, Jewish, who'd converted to Catholicism, now is nothing, <laughs> illustrious intellectual, could not be farther from the expected path, right, that my mother had been presented with as a young girl. And I think there was, and I think, as I write about in the book, my father also felt like a weirdo and an outcast in his family. And I think that their marriage or their union, their dating, their engagement, their marriage, they saw each other as a kind of refuge from mm -hmm. their conservative families, both of them. And I think for my mom, you know, it's something that I look back on, on her career and it's just astonishing. It's astonishing that she comes to New York. She, she went to Northwestern on the acting scholarship. She decided she didn't want to be an actress. She goes to the Radcliffe Publishing course and just moves to New York and is rooming with like three or four other girls, gets this job as an assistant at a women's magazine. And by the time she's in her mid to late 20s, she's representing Michael Crichton, Tom Wolfe, right? Hunter Thompson. I mean, it's just, it, it, it boggles the mind. Like my mom had so much ambition and so much grit. And she still says to me, she doesn't understand how she convinced them to sign with her. <laughs> She's like, why? <laughs> I don't get it. And so, you know, it was just always this feeling that my mom was, I was so proud of her always as a little kid. Like she was, a, right. I knew she was a pioneer and my father was incredibly proud of her. And my father was always saying to us, you know, we need to let your mother rest. We need to be quiet because, you know, she's had a very difficult week. And he was just very ahead of his time in that. I recently went to Australia for a week, which means two weeks of highly disturbed sleep. But know what made the deprivation just a little more palatable? Wearing my cozy earth sweats on the plane, which are as comfortable as pajamas, and then wrapping myself in my cozy earth bed as soon as I got home. And yes, I know you're not supposed to nap when you're jet lagged, but boy, did I miss my bed. After all, sleep deprivation has a huge impact on my mental health, and I'm not alone. One out of three Americans report being sleep deprived. This has massive implications for our health as well as for our general life satisfaction. Women, in particular, are significantly impacted by sleep deprivation. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw deal, which is why it's so important to invest in a great mattress and even better sheets, specifically sheets that are soft but not shiny and cozy but not sweaty. This is why I love Cozy Earth, because they make viscose bamboo sheets that are indescribably soft. It's like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite 
things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature regulating, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas, which are really handsome with piped edges. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. The other great thing about Cozy Earth is that they make their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill, even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days, and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. Treat yourself to the ultimate in comfort and indulgence with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize your self-care and sleep health. Use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After you place your order, be sure to let them know we sent you. Select podcast and the survey and be sure to write in pulling the thread. It's interesting to me that you are such a creative and creatively expressed imaginative child and your parents are both part of the sort of the structure of the arts, right? Your mom representing and my agent for example is an incredible editor. I don't know that she harbors any ambition to write, but she's an incredible editor and your father is or was a very famous theater critics. So they're sort of tangent, they're they're part of the structure, right? But do you feel like either of your parents, and I thought it was really beautiful the way that you talked about how it was easier for you to pursue sort of nonfiction academia than it was to ever insert yourself into a creative writing class, right? Like you skipped all the creative writing yes. electives at Brearley. <laughs> what is that for for all of you? Sort of that association, tangential association, but not in the actual, I mean, you're writing books, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I completely know what you mean. Yeah. And I gave up acting and singing after my first year at Yale. I mean, I sang in in freshman chorus in the first year and then I, I got tapped for Red Hot and Blue and I didn't do it. And I didn't act in plays. I think my parents, my mother had wanted to be an actress. I think that's very important. She had been kind of crushed by very cruel teachers at Northwestern. She had been there with with Richard Benjamin, Paula Prentice, some some people who went on to quite a lot of success. And I think she felt, both of my parents felt, and I say this in the book, that they both felt that the world of writing fiction or being a mainstream writer, right? Whether it's nonfiction or fiction, publishing, getting reviewed, and being an actor, it was a vulnerable position that they did not want their children to have to endure. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't think my father ever wanted to be a creative writer. Now he wasn't just a theater critic. He, you know, he taught playwrights and he taught actors at Yale Drama School. So like in the seventies, he taught Henry Winkler was one of his most beloved students, Meryl Streep. He directed some shows at the Yale Rep. And he taught playwrights, many playwrights, in addition to teaching the critics and the dramaturgs. So I, but I think for both of them, it came from a good place of not wanting their children to struggle and suffer. And I think they also knew that having children 
was of the utmost importance to me. It was very strange. Like, as I say in the book, I had 150 stuffed animals and dolls that were all my children. <laughs> and I was called Mrs. Gilman and my sister was called Mrs. Filton. And we were single mothers of our large broods. And they would say to me, you know, you can't have children and be an actor. It just doesn't work. And how funny is it that Meryl Street, my father's student, is one of the greatest examples of somebody. She's had four kids. She's raised them beautifully and had an incredibly successful career. So I think my parents were were wrong in many ways, but I think they were also doing this out of a desire to spare me, you know, being kind of relentlessly sized up and judged and appraised and found wanting in various ways. And they wanted me to, and then they also just very much believed in my critical intelligence and they wanted me to express it. Yeah. Well, do you feel creatively expressed or do you regret not like feeling not shamed away from that, but gently ushered away from that other part of creative expression? You know, I feel absolutely creatively expressed as a writer. I do. Do I wish that I had tried acting and singing a little bit more? I do. I have to admit it, Elise. It's sort of, it's still a wound. You know, I mean, I talk in the book about doing a musical at James the School, which is incredible. And, you know, I sing a lot with my kids and they're both singers and musicians. Benj is a very talented guitarist. I do have some regret about that. Like, I wish I had pursued it a little bit more, but I absolutely love writing about literature, teaching literature, and expressing myself and being very, very personal in my writing in a way that I was not able to do when I was an academic. So, right. you know, I might like to put out an album in 10 years. I don't know. But, <laughs> but writing-wise, I feel very, very, very creatively fulfilled. Well, it's interesting because you if you don't mind if I read this part of your book to you, but you, your dad is also incredibly vulnerable, right? Like he writes this incredibly, I haven't read Faith, Sex, Mystery, but he writes a tell-all a, a tell about himself, right? And yep. really exposes himself in a very vulnerable way to the world. You write... It seemed that this indeed had been my father's struggle to reconcile his intellectual rigor and insistence on lucidity and precision with his hunger for belief, his spiritual yearnings, his sense of something beyond the capacity of words to describe or the mind to grasp and master. He erected organic but increasingly hardened carapaces of eloquence and authority to protect the sensitive, vulnerable parts of himself. By the time of faith, sex, mystery, and even more in his checkoff book, he was coming out of that shell, allowing himself to lay bare his living, wounded soul and his hunger for a larger life for what he called an opening into eternity. You're an excellent writer. I'm sure you know that. But that's so beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful, that idea of... And let's talk a little bit about criticism, right? Because you... This is the world in which you were raised and... It is a, it can feel like a defense, right? Like you're judging, you're assessing, you're passing verdict on other people's yep. creative expression. What's the 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 Teddy Roosevelt? It's not the critic that counts. It's the yes, you know, the daring greatly, <laughs> the daring greatly, right? Like we we at some in some ways have a an aversion to criticism, and I don't know was that how it was when he was, or was there more reverence for that as an art when he was sort of working at his prime? 
There was absolutely more reverence for it as an art. Yes. I mean, I grew up not only surrounded by all these wonderful creative people, but all these incredible critics like Stanley Kaufman, the longtime film critic for the New Republic, Anatole Braillard, and Christopher Lehmannhaupt, who were the book critics for the New York Times, you know, Alfred Kazin, Elizabeth Hardwick, Susan Sontag, you know, all mm -hmm. of these magnificent critics who were valued on the level of creative writers. And I think one of the things when I first got the impulse to write this book, I initially I saw it as kind of an elegy for the, the lost kind of glory era of criticism. Mm. And how the verdicts of critics, the thoughtfulness of these critics, the way that these critics saw themselves as advocates for not only the arts in general, but for the truth, right? In other words, there was something courageous about telling the truth. And when my father found, and he was a literary critic as well, when he found works lacking or, you know, he derided them, he was doing it out of a desire to uphold a standard of greatness in art and or to dispel, you know, what he saw as kind of pernicious hype, right? Mm. Around things that really weren't good. And he wanted to point, and he saw himself as working on behalf of readers and theater goers and being that, middleman he compared himself to a policeman at one point i think gentle <laughs> policeman who helped a children across the street <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly and so and i you know i am a critic and i i review both fiction and nonfiction for the boston globe and i am i am a much i don't know if i would say gentler critic than my father but i certainly don't you know eviscerate books the way, the way my father did but I admire him for his courage in, you know, practicing. I, I say in the book that John Leonard, another great critic, fantastic critic who made Toni Morrison, uh, or, you know, we're so grateful to her, he, to him for giving her that phenomenal review for Song of Solomon. John Leonard said, my father practiced confrontation criticism. <laughs> and that's so interesting because I learned to avoid confrontation. Yes. Me too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I am enthusiastic. And you talked about your dad, sort of the, how critical, hypercritical and enthusiastic he could be. And, and perhaps they're not mutually exclusive. I tend to, the criticism that I do, I mean, I don't write criticism. I just ignore, right? I don't write about <laughs> or... <laughs> interview or talk too, about <laughs> I've done that too I've recused myself from writing a review when I read and I'm like oh no this is not yeah gonna, this is triggering well, I, me or there's something that no I don't want to do this no yeah no I think that that I think omission is another form in some ways not of criticism but of just abstaining and not having an opinion about something if if I don't feel like I can be enthusiastic about it but when you're reviewing books and when they're choosing books for you to review, what are the parameters on which criticism is done now? And has that changed? Like, are you reviewing books that are deemed important? Are you reviewing books that are deemed important and or potentially popular? Is there a code that you are abiding by? It's so interesting because the first review, I wrote a review of a children's book for the New York Times Book Review 
around the time that my paperback was coming out. And I was very grateful to Pamela Paul, who was the children's book editor at that point, went on to become the editor of the New York Times Book Review and is no longer there, writes an opinion column now. But she gave me the review because she she had, she felt bad that the New York Times hadn't reviewed my book. And so she said, let's give you a chance. And then she hired me to do a back page essay for the New York Times Book Review. So I entered the world as a critic in part because of a perceived slight of my book by the New York Times, which was so interesting. And fortunately, at least I love this book. I could be so enthusiastic about it. But then my first review in the Boston Globe was of a debut novel. And I wrote probably the most scathing review I've written to this point. This was, I think, in 2013, 2014. And it had gotten a huge advance. There was a ton of hype around it, this book. And I really thought it was terrible. And I just channeled Richard Gilman full bore. And I said, I've got to point out, you know, I, I saw it as almost, this is kind of what's wrong with the way publishing is working now. That something like this is getting a huge advance when there are all these much worthier books out there. And so I really did, but I look back at it and I think, oh my gosh. And then I saw something on Twitter that said, someone said, this is my code in reviewing. I will never publish, an editor said, a, ne a terribly negative review of a debut book. And I thought, oh, I did that. I wrote that. At this point, you know, I've been at the Boston Globe for long enough. I get to pick the books I review. So I'll just say, these are the ones I want to do. And and I generally try to pick a range of things that I, by authors that I love or books that I think sound interesting and engaging. And so, you know, every month or so I'll do research on what's coming out. But, you know, there are times like I asked to review Marilyn Robinson's Jack because I'm a huge fan of Marilyn Robinson. And I really didn't like it. And I couldn't believe that the one time I've gone into print about Marilyn Robinson, I had to give her a bad review. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, it, it's, causes me a lot of, there's some sleepless nights. You know, there are some moments where, and in, with the Boston Globe, the reviews are relatively short. And yeah. I, one thing that I really want to start doing is writing more long form criticism, writing for the New York Review of Books, writing the New Yorker. I just haven't had time because I've, I teach so much, but I need more space. Yeah. I want and need more space so that I can be more nuanced. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. 
I loved this description of your father as a critic. You write, criticism from my father was a diagnosis of false seeing, a diagnosis of false being. He loathed plays that pandered to an audience's comfortable view of itself or loaded every rift with highfalutin ore. He despised people who put on airs, were pretentious, dishonest, hypocritical. He was a critic of what he referred to disparagingly as bourgeois culture and Broadway's prominent role in it, of celebrity for its own sake, part of his resistance to star vehicles, vanity projects, and puff pieces, of material acquisitiveness and ostentation. I love that. And those things, that feels like good things to guard against, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting because then, you know, my father was just such a contradiction and so paradoxical in many ways, because, you know, I write at other points in the book about how he was a sucker for my fair lady and he loved Annie and, you know, there were certain Broadway shows and he loved musical theater. He loved it. And, you know, Evita, I remember him. It was so funny because I remember my mom and my dad coming back from seeing the original Evita with, and they just gone, not as, not as in his critical role, but just on a date night right before they broke up. And it was Patty Lupone and Mandy Potemkin. And my father was like, this is fantastic. And I remember him going on and on and like, you know, and then Andrew Lloyd Webber is now kind of synonymous with Velveeta. But, you know, I will argue until the day I die, at least, that The Phantom of the Opera is a great musical. I, 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 <laughs> I know you it. loved Cats, too. Oh, oh my gosh. That was, <laughs> yeah. And he never knew that I sang Memory in a talent show. <laughs> I actually, that Cats was the first thing I ever saw on Broadway, and I was probably eight or nine, and I loved it. So I'll defend Cats with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not planning on going again. I don't want to shatter that childhood memory. No, I've never I've never bliss. gone again. Never gone again. <laughs> not seen the movie, which is supposed to be absolutely horrific. I will not see it. No. <laughs> well, one thing throughout the book, and this is, I guess, the point, as you talk about him as a, both a critic and enthusiast, and the complications of having him as your father as well as the gift, is you write. You know, this book is an attempt at exorcism at the same time that it is a plea to be haunted. Such a beautiful way of talking about that extreme ambivalence that so many of us feel about so many people in our lives, right? Oh, Just yeah. the, the having to hold to very different views or feelings about the people we love the most. Yes. And my father taught me, my father taught me how to do that. I mean, I think that it's so interesting. My father, what was he most enthusiastic about? His children. If you asked him, what's the most important thing to you? I mean, I never doubted for a second that my father would give his life for us in an instant, that we were by far the most important thing to him always. So, you know, it's funny when you're talking about attachment, and I, I, I love Stan Tatkin's work, by the way. I think I have his book about dating. I think I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I have it. It's great. A Wire for Dating, I think it's called. And, you know, I always describe myself as being securely attached. When I take the quizzes, I'm always, I always come out as securely attached. But I think I was securely attached in the sense that I always knew that my parent, that my sister my brother and I, we were the most important thing by far to our parents. And I never doubted their love for a second. I never doubted, I never felt that I was 
anything other than completely loved and seen, particularly by my father, for who I really was. Yeah. At the same time, there's an insecurity. Maybe this is something that the attachment theorists need to add to their next edition. You know, there's the person who's securely attached in the sense that they know that they're loved and they don't doubt it. And I'm, I never have, I've never had anxiety in relationships, romantic relationships, or in my marriage about, oh, does this person not love me? Is this person going to leave me, et cetera, in a romantic sense? But I have had the anxiety is this person going to die? Is this person going to get sick? And I, you know, as I say in the book, I, I, I just had this feeling from a very early age that my father was going to die from smoking. Mm-hmm. I just always felt it. And I have always had this anxiety. Is this person, and I have the part in the book where I talk about, cho- especially after my father died, choosing moody, depressed, prone to addiction men And so, you know, being riddled by that anxiety, are they going to be in a good mood today? Are they going to drink today? Are they going to self-medicate in an unhealthy way today? Right. And so that's been the anxiety, never feeling like, oh, are they going to love me today? Not that so much as just, are they going to love themselves enough today? Well, and I would argue that, and by, by, you know, that stunning and incredibly hard thing that your dad said what what did he say sometimes I think I'd kill myself if it weren't for if you if it weren't girls. for you girls yeah. yeah and this idea that of course he loved you not that he loved you too much but that you were it right like you were the focus of his you were what was keeping him alive mm-hmm. that is a very heavy burden for a child and an overwhelming burden and so it's of course the part of me that wants to be a therapist and psychoanalyst is like, oh yeah, you're just, this is how you learned love. Like this is what you think love is. Yes. Consuming dependence and absolutely dependability required of you to be this rock. And so that seems to be what you're recreating. That's the attachment wound isn't so much, are you lovable? It's of course, you're going to have to be the center of someone's world, the foundation Please. for their life. Yes. And, you know, even I would say up until 2010, 2011, if a man said to me like, oh, wow, I don't, I'm not going to drink anymore because I'm so happy dating you. Or, you know, I've been depressed all my life, but now the sun is bursting through the clouds (laughs) and it's all because of you. That was like, that was so seductive to me. That was familiar. That feeling yeah. of, oh, wow, that's what this person must really love me. And I'm doing a good job and I'm being a good girlfriend. And, you know, even my husband, the father of my, of my children, he wasn't depressed, but, you know, he had all sorts. He had the heavy burden of his parents, both dying very young And he was diagnosed as an adult on the autism spectrum, like our son, and was very introverted. And and I was bringing him out. And I was Mm -hmm. coaxing him into social life and warmth and happiness. And I say at one point in the book that when his mother was dying in her early 50s, tragically, of cancer, you know, she said, I'm not worried about him because I'm, I'm worried about my other boys, but I'm not worried about him because he has you. Mm -hmm. And I felt oh, that's good. I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I'm so happy that I'm, that she can die feeling secure about her son. And I'm being a good wife because I'm going to be the one who keeps him happy and keeps him connected. And 
you know, I, as I say in the book, I've done tons of work. I mean, the Melody Beatty books. I was going to say, it sounds to me oh, like you need to read Codependent no more. <laughs> oh, my. There's a new edition coming out. I'm very excited. I saw an ad on Instagram. I pre-ordered it. Elise, I mean, you know, the cl- I am I am the classic codependent in the arena of romantic relationships. My yeah. therapist always says to me, you, you're not you're not codependent with work. You have very good boundaries around that. You probably remember that, Elise. I probably put it on the syllabus, right? You will not call me after nine o'clock. And if you do, (laughs) you will get in trouble. But in romantic relationships, certainly, I mean, with Matthew Previn, you know, obviously I started dating him before the whole nightmare and tragedy with Mia and Woody unfolded. But, you know, his parents had had a very bitter split. His father was a womanizer and very problematic in many ways. And I certainly in that relationship too, from the beginning felt, oh, this is a wounded bird in some way. And then obviously stayed with him. You know, I love him dearly as a human being, but the romantic relationship was problematic, but I stayed because I, I owed it to the family and I had to, I couldn't abandon them. I had to be there for them. It's funny when you were talking about criticism and enthusiasm. I, and you might remember this from when I was a professor. I was known as like the hardest grader in the Yale English department. But you were? I was. And so you did especially <laughs> well. Okay. <laughs> I hardly gave any A's because my father had, had taught me like straight A is reserved for the exceptional. And even when I would give good grades, I would give a ton of feedback. And I remember valuing the professors who would, you know, give a good grade, but then would tell you a lot of ways in which you could improve and be rigorous with you. And my father really did bequeath to me this combination of warmth slash enthusiasm and critical rigor and honesty about work. Because I've always believed that the greatest gift you can give somebody, you know, whether it's like in my personal life, I was that person who would say, my friend would say, does this skirt look good on me? And, you know, other people would be like, oh, yeah, it does. It does. And, and I would say, no, I actually don't think it really does. Because I would want that from my friend. And so I would give it to my friend. But you have to do it in a kind way, right? You have to do it in a way that shows I'm giving you this honest feedback because I believe in you. I value you. And I think you can do better. So I try to channel that as a critic as well. And as a writing teacher. It makes sense. My brother is a book editor and a very very good editor and he when he he did notes on my book and he was like I'm telling you this because I love you I love you and so I'm telling you this exactly (laughs) my mother's a big fan of your brother by the way oh that's nice to hear he's the best it's funny thinking about your childhood and my childhood I think there was less play in my childhood but a lot of literature and it's not probably not surprising that Ben is a book editor and all I do is read because there's something about that exposure, I think, as a young child. The one thing that breaks my heart as a parent now is trying to get my kids into books. I'm like, what? What do I need to do to get you to pick up any? Maybe they have too many books. I'm not sure what the. No, wait, Elise, how old are they now? They're nine and six. So they're little. They're nine and six. They're little. Okay. I know. Well, my older son, obviously the one who's who's autistic, he doesn't read much. I have okay. to say, although I did manage to turn him on to certain childhood classics like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
but my younger son, who's dyslexic and dysgraphic and couldn't even really read until he was seven, is doing directed studies at Yale and what? is going to be an English major probably. So That's it's amazing. never too late, Elise. Okay, okay. I won't stress. I won't no, stress. Don't stress. Okay. I just get so much joy, like you, out of books. And so I want that for my kids, even though I'm trying to not force them into any any particular identity. So what do you think? Obviously, you're teaching and you're reviewing and you're writing, but there's no novel in you. There's no, maybe an album, maybe a Christmas album. <laughs> album. I did the Christmas album with Benjamin about five <laughs> years ago. Definitely an album at some point, maybe as a backup singer with my wonderful kids. I think there is a novel in me. You do? I do. And both of my agents, so Tina Bennett, who was my first agent, and, and Eric Simonoff, my current agent, I think they both think, I mean, I wrote my memoirs in the way that one would write a novel in the sense that I thought about them in terms of the characters and I wanted them to be suspenseful. I wanted you to be with me as the experience was unfolding. You know, I teach mostly fiction now, although I was equally a poetry and a fiction person as an academic. I wrote my dissertation on Jane Austen and Wordsworth. And William Cooper, the 18th century poet that you might remember from our class. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm also a big mystery and thriller reader. Interesting. Like my father, like my father, I'm a high-low person. And my father brought me up reading Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and watching the Hardy Boys on TV. Sean Cassidy, my first love, shout out to you. And watching Murder, She Wrote. I talk about that in the book with Angela Lansbury. And taking us to all the Agatha Christie movies. And I have an idea for like a mystery slash thriller. Ooh. I might do it, Elise. I think you should do it. Maybe you should become the next Julia Quinn and write romance novels, but make them mysteries and turn them into Netflix shows and become a billionaire. Well, that would be pretty amazing. Her (laughs) husband is a friend of mine. And yes, I am. Yes. That would, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Just picking up the codependent theme again, would, was your mom, did your mom refuse to be codependent with your dad? And do you think that's also why she bailed a little bit on family life or was present but absent because she couldn't Ooh. handle the pressure of his needs for codependency? That is a fascinating insight. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think my mother was very good at protecting her work life and setting boundaries around her work life. And she recently told me, it was so funny. I was reading Jan Wenner's memoir and my mom obviously worked with Jan a lot on Hunter Thompson and and Tom Wolfe. 
And Jan is talking about how Hunter would call him at all hours of the morning and like get, do drugs with him. And my, and my mother said, you know, I really laid down the law for Hunter. And you know, it's so funny because I said, mom, how did you survive this? We were little. How did you deal with this? Jan talks about getting like 15 calls a day. And she said, Hunter never called me after eight. He respected that I was a mom. And somehow my mother is very good at enforcing those boundaries. I do think though, Elise, that she was somewhat codependent with my father in the sense that she, she absolutely believed, as I did, that everything had to be in a certain way in order for my father to write. And remember, I talk about how, you know, she would say, don't go near him, you know, it's very important. And she very passionately believed in his intelligence. And I mean, she would say to this, to this day, if I asked her, she'd say, you know, your father was absolutely brilliant, probably the most brilliant Mm -hmm. person I ever met. And she believed in that. And I do think that she, in some way, there was something seductive for her about being the strong, stable one who went out and brought home the bacon. And she was okay in that role until she wasn't. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I say in the book that she dated another kind of troubled, depressed person right after my father. So, you know, she said once to me, you know, I have quit the emotional salvage business for good. Mm. So... And I actually haven't asked my mom about codependent. I haven't asked her if she identifies as a codependent. It's something that I would be interested in asking her. Yeah. No, but I am curious, considering you talk about sort of, her, I think you might even even called it elation or the happiness that you could sense when she sat you and your sister down to tell her, tell you that she was leaving and that they were getting a divorce. Yeah. And then she, as you mentioned, is excellent at boundaries, like the the firmness of boundaries that she laid down to the detriment, I would say. I feel like now we're a lot more nuanced. We have a much more nuanced and, and maybe advanced idea of divorce and sort of putting the kids in the forefront. As you said, like the way that you went through your divorce and nesting and ensuring that your kids yes. weren't displaced and that there was an equity between lodgings of parents so that you weren't put in the situation your kids weren't put in the situation that you were where your dad was sort of scraping by and your mom yes. wasn't but what is where did her anger at him i don't know what it is like where did that sort of strong boundary and not maybe not hate i mean you do say that she hates him but you say one of whom hated the other where did it come from i think in a way you know as you're talking it's i'm sort of realizing i think in a way the anger and the anger slash hate was her the only way that she knew to get out Mm -hmm. in other words i think she had so much guilt about breaking up the family Uh, about taking away the parent who spent much more time with us, who was much more invested in our childhood, that it was easier for her to just depict things in a kind of black and white way. And I think there was also probably, you know, suppressed, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've wasted however many years it was at that point, 15 years of my romantic life on this person that I was never in love with. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, she wanted to make up for lost time. I definitely got that feeling. And you're right. I say quiet elation. Mm -hmm. She had an expression of quiet elation. Like she'd finally 
managed to do it. And I think she was, she always had one foot out mm-hmm. from the minute they started dating. She said, she never said to him, I'm in love with you. She made it clear to him, but I think he needed her so much. And that was seductive to her. And he right. adored her and he put her on a pedestal. And I think especially at that time when there were very few men who would have supported my mother having a career this big, my father was not at all jealous. He was fine when she traveled. He was, you know, fine. I remember I, I posted on Instagram of Michael Crichton today, you know, my beloved Michael Crichton, who is the most gorgeous man I've ever seen in the flesh. And, you know, my father never had any jealousy, you know, go out to dinner with, you know, he, he wasn't controlling or jealous or, and he wasn't, he didn't feel less than because my mother was more successful. Right. And that's something that I, there were just a lot of qualities that he had that enabled her to both have the extremely successful career she had and also to have children and feel like her children were being well taken care of and were being brought up in the way that she wanted them to. And I think she always saw, you know, he, he nurtured us in the right way and did everything. And she was just very, she was very grateful to him for that. But I think when she decided to get out, She had so much guilt. Remember, she's a Midwestern girl where no one in the community got divorced, right? Like there's a lot of, oh my God. And she was, you know, in 1980, this was the beginning of this whole wave of divorce. Mm -hmm. And I say at one point, I talk about Lionel and Virginia Tiger getting divorced and how I see my mother kind of looking, hmm. And I'm thinking, oh dear, right? Is Mm -hmm. Is this going to embolden her? Right. Because a member of our circle is splitting up. Contagious. Yeah. And it yeah. was. Yeah. No, it's interesting that what be- was so seductive to her originally would become suffocating in some way or too much. And then probably in the aftermath, the justification or the, the work that we do to feel, yeah, justified in our decisions – and how we have to process that with ourselves. And I guess she brought you into that. Is does she like the book? Does she, or is she does she think it's fair? She is not reading it. She does not <laughs> want to read it. And it's funny because so my ex-husband refused to read the first or declined to read, I should say, my first book, in which I mean he's a character in this one, but in the first one too. And my mother has declined to read this one. They both say they trust me. They, it's too painful for them to go back into it all. And, you know, my mother is the kind who, when the big biography of Donald Bartholomew came out and she was interviewed extensively for it and she's a big character in it. She, you know, she shudders every time she thinks about reading it. And she sent me out to borders to check the passages that she was in and to tell her if it was okay. So she is just, you know, doesn't want to read it. Is very Amazing. proud of me. Um, and does that bother you? Or is it better to not be confirmed? Oh, Elise, it was the best news I'd heard all year. I was like, please. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, I think, it, you know, it's, it's funny because so many memoirists wait until both their parents are gone right before they yeah. die. And... I think I resisted writing this book, but I think this, you know, when my agent said to me, you need to write a book about your dad, you just need to. And 
my mother at first was just when I told her about it, she was like, but who cares about the 70s and criticism? I mean, it's really not that interesting. <laughs> and then I sort of told her what the story was going to be, and that it was a book about divorce, and it was a universal story of how we all have a We all, at some point, idealize, romanticize our parents, right? The parent falls off a pedestal. You have to come to terms with your parents as flawed and complicated people. And then ideally, you get back to a place, right, where you can look at them, and this gets back to the enthusiasm and criticism thing, right? Where you can yeah. look at them with clear vision and a sort of unromanticized view, but recover the deep love and respect and admiration. And then at that point, she said, oh, you do need to write this. <laughs> so, you know. But she, I won't read it. <laughs> I won't read it. She said, I don't need to. So, you know, it really, when Richard told me he wasn't reading my first book, and, he, and Richard actually helped me with this one. He edited, he's, he's a great editor. So, and he, my ex-husband, he lives in, he lives in my building. So sweet. I remember when you guys were a young couple, very handsome couple. Elise, I remember you came out to the car once to see Ben, (laughs) who was in the car seat. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It was a very Uh, handsome guy. Yes. (laughs) And I love him dearly. He's a great father. And, you know, I, I do think my parents gave me a great example of what not to do. Yeah. With a divorce. As Priscilla said, this book is one of nuance. It is a hard look at her father and his life and his legacy and also a a full embrace. And it's really beautifully done and moving to watch her extrapolate and process her understanding of her parents' marriage and of his life and her role as this underlying support and structure to his and both the burden and delight and joy of that she really gets at that she writes and yet there was pressure involved in remaining pure and unspoiled for him and knowing that I was his greatest source of joy I directed my appearance my behavior my life trajectory in ways that would bring him the most joy sometimes at the cost of suppressing vital aspects of my being That's a heavy sentiment, but I think many of us can understand what that feels like. And when you are dependent on your parents and you feel that their happiness is dependent on your own, how that can require so much of you, right? It certainly required a lot of Priscilla. And yet her love for her father is present on every page of her book. And her mother does not, she had mentioned, the Kirkus reviewer called her mother cruel. That's not how I read the book at all. But I recognized parts of myself, honestly, in her mom and the way that she struggled to enter into their childhood. I'm not great at that, to be honest. I love being with my kids, but Rob is better at playing with them and entering their worlds. So anyway, it's one of those books particularly if you're a child of divorce, which I'm not, but I would imagine if you're a child of divorce, there's a lot in these pages that will hit your heart. And I think for all of us who both 
love our parents dearly and at times feel critical of them, this is one path, one look at, at how that can ultimately resolve. All right, thanks for listening. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.